Hello and welcome to the MUS in Focus podcast, the show that brings experiencing politics at Model European Union Strasbourg closer to your ears. Every episode, we bring to the forefront current and former participants or organizers to help you have a better understanding of how the oldest simulation of European politics operates. And now, let's put MUS in focus. So today I'm interviewing a former participant and organizer and a former Beta Europe president, uh, which is the umbrella association of most MEUs in Europe, and a current parliamentary assistant, Max Frey. Hello, Max. Thank you for being here. Hi, Irina. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm interviewing you because you had quite an interesting uh, path with MEUs, uh, with MUS more specifically. Um, so you went through all the phases of the MUS cycle of life, so to speak. Uh, you went from being a participant and then an organizer, so you can provide us with a little bit of insight of how uh, MUS has developed over the years. Um, so I would like to start with asking you uh, to tell us a little bit about your story with MUS. Um, it's, it's, it's a very ordinary MUS story, and I think it's one that happens to most people. Essentially, I applied without really knowing what it was about, um, came across the, the news about it, I think it was on social media, or it was, it was sent around by my university at the time. Shout out to Maastricht University, <laughs> uh, the poor man's college of Europe. Um, uh, but yeah, so I, I got to find out about this MU thing, and it immediately spoke to my heart, because I've been doing some MUNs, um, already, and I've always found that they were a bit too silly. I mean, they, they all degenerated into, uh, you know, France declaring war on South Korea over a packet of gummy bears that they didn't want to share. And um, so I, I like having fun, but not in that sense. So I, um, when I saw that, I said, hey, this is maybe a bit, a bit more interesting. And, and the fact that it was held in Strasbourg just completely, uh, completely tickled my, my, uh, my, my curiosity about it. So I applied and I ended up going. Uh, and then I got stuck, and I've been appearing in Strasbourg at the MU, I'm ashamed to say, um, for the last seven years ever <laughs> since, in various positions. You're the true mascot of MUS <laughs> at this point. Yes, they, they, they should turn me into a comic book character and see if like, to incorporate me to the logo or something. <laughs> no, I wouldn't like that. So uh, tell me more about how uh, your participation turned out to be in the end, in 2013. Uh, did it turn out to be more serious than your previous MUN experiences? Uh, Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, there's the good thing about MEU uh, and Strasbourg specifically, I mean, let's talk about the setting later because that's amazing. Um, but the, the thing that really impressed me from the beginning is, was that there are heated moments of tensions between the participants in their roles, but it's only when they're really serious about their roles and they stick to them and they it's 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 this realism that creates these um moments that in other muns uh they would probably have to come up with some idea for a crisis uh to make it more interesting but at mu you don't need that because people are so into it that the crisis just happens um <laughs> i remember one of the things that we were debating one of the topics was uh, the accession of croatia because um, um, it hadn't happened at the time yet. Um, and the other topic was, uh, I think it was the audio audiovisual media directive, which is very weird because I end up working for the MEP that worked on that as well now. So, um, 
Yeah, <laughs> life goes in circles. <laughs> but what happened on the last day is um, uh, the the commission. I don't know if it was a mistake or it was the commission being the commission and everybody just sticking to their role. <laughs> but the commission had snuck in some articles into the trilogue agreement between the parliament and the council. And they were pushing for a quick final vote uh, and for the whole thing to become adopted. And uh, I was the uh, group leader of um, uh, the, the, the the party formerly known as ALDE. Um, and uh, together with an EPP colleague, we found out about this this thing that wasn't there during the negotiations. Um, and so, you know, we went to the organizers, we asked for like a 20 minute break to like discuss. And they said, no, we have to stick to the timetable. You know, this is very institutional. Everything has to follow the path. Um, and, and then we ended up um, bringing the commission down to their knees uh, by threatening that we would block the accession of Croatia unless we were given some time to to like at least have a final uh, round of you know one minute declarations of vote on on the text in which I urged everyone to vote against it you know because you know the commission has been uncovered uh, and in the last minute they came the, the presidency then announced that the the text has gone back to the original agreed text um, I, I I wouldn't dare to imply that this happens during trilogues um, but if it did then it would be a very realistic um, <laughs> recreation of such moments. Yeah, so indeed, um, the crisis scenario was created in the end, uh, although you wouldn't have expected it. But what we like to, uh, and I like to reiterate about uh, MEUs in particular, that it always stays in the somewhat of an area of plausibility. So although we don't try to emulate what happens in real life, and we don't try to emulate uh, whatever decisions were uh, already taken, if we're discussing a legislative proposal that has already been passed, at least, uh, given the information at hand, uh, participants usually stay in that realm of uh, realism. Yeah, magic realism. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, also, I mean, this is probably also the, one of the reasons why I stuck around and then I decided to join the team afterwards, um, because I really felt like I had found this this ecosystem of people that are absolute and complete nerds, um, but in a in a in a way that that is. Uh, very intellectual and very endearing, and, and we all had the, um, you know, the, the same sense of humor and the same interests. And, if, you know, nerds will probably agree that it's difficult to come across other nerds that are on the same wavelength. But if you go to MU, you find it's, it's a conference with 200 people, and at least 150 of them are exactly as weird as you are with you know the, yes. the same the same kind of humor the same jokes the same references like when do you get to make an inside joke about someone being a damp rag and and uh, i mean this is this is not just I mean, by now this is the history of, of of european nerdy humor but um yeah there you go so i felt it was it was a group worth sticking around and a, and a project worth supporting which is why i then uh applied to become part of the illustrious organizing team um and, and that was a slippery slope and all went downhill from there <laughs> um, but going back to your time as an MEP, what did you like most uh, about it? And um, more specifically, what do you think it takes uh, to be a good MEP and to really excel at your role uh, at MUS? What, what I like the most is the setting. Um, because if you go to any MEU or, or you know, let's not even talk about MUNs, but if you go to conferences that are, you know, set a university hall or... Um, some representative building uh, of like city administration, very fine, very good effort, but it does not beat the European <laughs> Parliament, I'm afraid. Uh, and even if, 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 if there was one in, in the plenary room in Brussels, even then your Strasbourg has this feeling that I've like, kept having even afterwards as an assistant, you know, to go to Strasbourg for the plenary. This is what you do as an MEP. Yes. 
And so this setting with, you know, those heavy dark blue chairs that makes no sense whatsoever and the, the microphones and, and the screens and there's a bloody orchestra playing the European anthem in the beginning <laughs> and everybody takes it seriously, you know. These, <laughs> these things, um, it, it really eases you into the role and it, it makes the whole, um, it just makes... It, it it just makes the illusion much more real, and you really you know after after about a week of sleep deprivation and and very serious debates on the content and the topics, you really end up believing that you're an MEP, and that makes it so much more easy to. And everybody else is 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 in that same state of mind, so it's not just that one guy who is exaggerating and you know addressing the chamber in a, in a stupid way, but everybody's kind of tripping about it. Yes. Um. And 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 that really makes it so easy to kind of go all the way and and. And lose all kind of um, uh, stage fright in a way, and and kind of you know oh I shouldn't I shouldn't you know be that extravagant and 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 I should make a fuss because it's all a simulation. But if, you know if you have you know a whole chamber in in that actual place going on about that, then it, it's really easy to. Um, that is true, um, and I think it's what happened to me when I was an MEP as well. That it just took all my insecurities and just threw them outside of the window. And I think uh, what adds to the realism of the atmosphere and what really did it for me was uh, having interpreters it, absolutely, in my bag. Yes. Absolutely, that was the most amazing thing ever about uh, MUS being uh, able to tell a joke and having it simultaneously interpreted in ten different languages at yes. the same time. And also being able to practice the languages that you know or you think you know. <laughs> uh, that is the most amazing thing about it. And I remember um, a lot of situations in which uh, we would uh, tell things that are sound so natural in our native language that then the interpreters would uh, come to us and they, they would tell us how difficult it was to try to convey the message of that one stupid joke that we told during the plenary session in the heat of the moment. And that made me really appreciative of what they do and added to the atmosphere. It really is. And I've got to say, the interpreters are probably the ones working the hardest in the in the whole conference. Because uh, in the parliament, the interpreters, they do two or three hours on block and then and then they're done for the day because the brain is fried. Yeah. And at MEU, they, they're all still in training. And it is, you know, talking about topics and issues and pretending to be a politician, it's an art. Uh, but interpreting is really a craft and it's it's... It's something that you have to learn. It's a skill and it's something very, very, um, like, of course, you have a talent for it, I guess. But but it's not something yeah. that you can just improvise, like you need to have it down. And these people are students in training who do the entire day without break. And it's just two per language, if they're lucky, uh, if one of them isn't hungover. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's three. and they just, it's three, three by now? Yeah, yeah, great. Even better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's 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 a monstrous effort, and uh, I, I was a bit mean to uh, to the interpreters when I was a participant. There was one moment. Uh, well, I, I wasn't mean, but I I, I abused. And intentionally, all of us are. I, I took advantage of the fact that the interpreters were there because uh, I, I was group leader for for Alde, and I had a speech coming up about uh, one of the topics that I really hadn't prepared that much, and so I didn't really have a lot to say. I didn't feel like I was making a point that was worth listening to. But obviously I wanted to steal the show and I wanted to be the guy who has the best speech in the room. Of course. Um, so I held it in Italian um, and, and none of the other participants knew by then that, that, I'm, that I am Italian. And so, because they, they always thought I was a German. Um, I'm, I'm both, by the way. Uh, and so when, when, when I opened like in Italian, everybody's like looked around and the interpreters got to work and everybody got to put their headphones on and then everybody came to me, oh, that's such a great speech and finally some realism and some multilingualism in the parliament. Nobody had listened to any of the word I actually said. They just liked the fact that it was, you know, it felt more European. 
So yeah, interpreters just make it great. In Italian, yes. Just FYI for future applicants or participants of MUS, you always, always need to give a heads up to interpreters whenever you switch languages like that, because if not, uh, you will get uh, fried afterwards. Don't don't do the the the, the jumping <laughs> through the speech uh, that that Juncker does constantly change to the entre les langues. It's it's really not good. Exactly. Um, But is there anything that you found particularly challenging about being a participant at MUS or uh, in the future as an organizer? Um, to be honest, the, the, the challenge really starts when you join the organizers because you really, it's, uh, and I don't want to discourage anyone, but, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's this kind of like you, you uh, while you're doing the simulation in that safe space of, of the simulated sphere, you're still kind of following a path with a timetable and there's organizers that can look out for you and 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 everything is you know maybe not what they talk about and what the decisions end up being but you know the day is kind of planned but if you're in charge of that planning that's when you really start shitting yourself a little because <laughs> you think yeah if, if if i'm not up to scratch and and me who is just a little cog in the machine that is just supposed to i don't know you know make sure there's a bottle opener for the euro night um, when the Eurofeast, when everybody brings their, their, their food from home, there was like at least four years in a row when nobody had brought a wine opener because, you know, they, oh, the, the venue might have one and they didn't. Um, and so it's like these things that, that you know, um, or, or just like making sure venues are booked, making sure that, that uh, there's you know, food for, you know, vegans and gluten-free and, you know, keeping, yes. keeping all that. It's something you have to have in mind. And if you don't have it, then people start writing angry things on Facebook, you know. <laughs> and, and, and so this kind of responsibility makes it a lot more challenging, um, which in turn, paradoxically, makes it a lot more fun. Um, and when you're done with it and everybody's really happy and everybody hugs and says, see you next year, then, then you're almost in tears because um, it's such a great like you get it's it's the biggest runner's high that is true and despite all of this and despite me being able to subscribe to everything every single word that you said we still stuck around for many years and we're still doing this uh, for some reason and that uh, goes to show how uh, inspired participants usually after MUS get uh, and uh, they dedicate most of their free time they, we have around 50, 50 20 year olds um, that dedicate all of their free time to making MUS happen. Um, so uh, to uh, go towards the end of our interview, um, I would like to ask you if you think that uh, MUS helped you in your current job in any way. Um, definitely, absolutely. Um, not so much because I have it on my CV, um, but especially because of the... Um, just the familiarity with the procedures and, and the place and the situation. Um, there was uh, one moment when, when I started working as an MEP assistant um, and, I, and I joined slightly late in the course of the last legislature and there were some files that I hadn't been following and, and suddenly it was amendment time. Um, and, and it wasn't a file that I was following particularly, but my MEP asked me, hey, it would be good to have some amendments on this. And, and and I broke out in a cold sweat because I thought, hey, this is... Uh, it was the PSI directive, by the way, about open data um, in, in, in public administration. And, um, in well, let's say that my, my, my group cares deeply about um, uh, public utilities providers. Um, and, and there was a, a situation, you know, it was potentially, you know, when, when there's competition. But anyway, technical <laughs> things, but... Um, I thought there was a lot at stake. Um, I, I had the impression that it was like I felt the weight of the responsibility. Um, 
and I went completely blank, and I had no idea what to where to start. And I and I and I thought about, hey, I've got to read all the position papers, and I started looking through all the email archives that my my predecessor in the job had had accumulated, and 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 I, I almost like I had a moment of panic. Um, and then I took a breath and I said, just pretend it's MEU. Um, and it's a cliche thing to say, but that's what I did. And then I looked at the text with an MEU frame of mind and I said, I'm an MEP in the SMD group at MEU and I'm just going to do the most SMD amendments possible. Um, so um, I, I added social here and there a little bit um, and, uh, and, and, and thought, hey, this is, you know, what, what would an MEP do? You know, and, and it's, it's a very obvious train of thought to have. But to kind of get that impulse, you need to have lived it, at least in simulation, once. And then I caught myself and I showed it to my boss and she was very impressed. Um, well, no, she said it was, it was all right. But <laughs> <laughs> All right is very good in that crisis situation, I would say. Because, yes, and I agree, MU teaches you how to handle crisis. It's, it's really, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's the stress and it's, it's the, just be, when, when you're confronted with... Uh, you know, even discussions about the, the council and, and, and the commissions and all that. So I'd probably even say that it's not just um, as, a, as an MEP assistant uh, a valuable experience, but probably in any kind of job that you have around the bubble, uh, because it, it, it does revolve around that universe. And wherever you look at it from, you will get a sense of familiarity that <laughs> yeah. makes, you know, at least easing into the job a lot easier um, if, if you've been through it uh, in in a simulated way for, for a week before. That is true. And uh, <coughs> you partly answered the question that I was going to ask, but still I'm going to ask it again so that you can expand on that a little bit more, um, which is what would you recommend to anyone who is a bit on the fence about applying to MUS still? I would say free yourself from the yoke of indecision. You have nothing to lose but your time. <laughs> Good. Uh, thank you very much for your time, <laughs> uh, Max. <laughs> and to everyone, we'll uh, catch up with each other in a further episode. Goodbye. If you liked this episode, please rate us on the platform you are using, share the podcast and tell a friend about it. Until next time on MUS In Focus.